you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, and my initial question to you is, have you ever had a day that you planned and were so excited about, and then as the day played on, it didn't go the way you intended it to? I mean, this has never happened to anyone, right? They have all those sayings about the best laid plans, right? We have these wonderful plans of how days will go, and uh, they often don't meet our expectations because we tend to be people who have lofty expectations, uh, and they don't meet it. And the reality of this parable that we're going to look at this morning is that it's sort of like that. Uh, A a beautiful garden is planted, a, a harvest of wheat is sown, and when the full harvest comes, there's other things in the midst of it. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus told the people another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds... Tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. In verse 36, Jesus explains to the disciples the meaning of the parable. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us this parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let's walk through it again just quickly. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. I think the first thing, and and maybe this is just so obvious that we miss it so often, is that there is an enemy. Jesus is very clear in this parable to say that seeds didn't, the bad seeds didn't just show up. Uh, You've heard me (laughs) groan, complain, whatever words you want to use about how weeds, they just rise everywhere (laughs) I intend them not to be. And they just keep showing up. What Jesus is saying, he's not saying that the devil causes these weeds to grow, but what he is saying is that in this parable, you have to understand that these things, they didn't just show up. They weren't part of the soil. 
someone sowed them, and so they're growing. There is an actual enemy. And in so much of the church, there's this growing subconscious, if not overt, belief that there is no enemy. And as rational, modern thought has evolved, we've sort of done away with those kinds of things. I mean, you have stories that we always hear great stories about the founders of our country and their firm belief in God. And we don't, I don't want to get off on a sidetrack here, but a lot of that, if you research it well, just isn't true. But there are stories of Thomas Jefferson, for instance, who would cut out every miracle from his New Testament and everything supernatural from it because in the rational mind, none of this would make sense. And as this stuff has permeated our culture, this, this, this understanding of the reality of an enemy is also kind of washed away with it. And so we spend lots of time, and rightly so, talking about Jesus and God and very little, if at all time, talking about the, that which opposes the move of the kingdom. And quite frankly, for people who do believe in the reality of an enemy, most of the time, if not all of the time, the label of enemy is placed on flesh and blood. Politicians, social systems, Supreme Court justices. When the reality is that Paul has told us something far different. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air. The the God of this world, that is Satan, the devil, that which opposes the move, the kingdom of God, opposes the gospel pushing forward. And so very much in the beginning of this parable, and in that culture it would have been much easier to hold on to this truth than it is in our culture, unfortunately, is that there is an enemy who sows bad seeds. There is an enemy who opposes the move of the kingdom of God. He is real. He exists. And he exists in complete opposition to the move of God. And there are, unfortunately, two sorts of errors when we come to talking about the enemy. One error would be, as I've sort of alluded to already, sort of not acknowledging it at all. And, and just talking about God and Jesus and sort of walking through this life oblivious to the spiritual battles that are happening everywhere around us. And then the second error would be sort of over-acknowledging it, uh, suggesting that maybe everything is the opposition of the enemy or the evil one. I remember when I was, was really young, and uh, I was up in the morning, and I was reading my Bible and I was just new to, to faith and understanding things. And I read my Bible and I felt like it connected with Jesus. And I got up and I banged my ankle on the side of my bed. And in my youth, saying to myself, why would Satan make me injure my ankle after I've had this great experience with God? Right? And, and I say that sort of not to poke fun at myself, although I do like to make fun of myself. But to suggest to you that that happens in our lives a lot. We confuse the opposition of Satan to the gospel and the kingdom of God with the opposition of Satan to the happiness of our particular day. 
I have news for us. Satan has bigger axes to grind than whether or not you're having a good day. He's opposing the move of the kingdom. He's not opposing the comfort of your day. Unless opposing the comfort of your day significantly impacts the move of the kingdom. There's an enemy who sows bad seeds. To ignore that is at your own peril. There is unbelievable spiritual battles happening behind the scenes. Probably for our own sanity and for our own comfort, God is kind to us to not open our eyes to this reality. Yet he's walking us through it. But there is a reason that Paul says that you need to put on the armor of God and walk into battle. Walk into the one that opposes the move of the kingdom. There's an enemy, and he's real. There's one who sows bad seeds. And it's interesting to me that when does he come and sow the seeds? While they're sleeping, right? Now, most commentators would suggest, and rightly so, that Jesus is just inferring to the fact that they come when no one's around to take care of it. But sleeping has this sort of connotation in Scripture, especially between Jesus and the disciples, of sort of their inability to watch and to be in tune with what's going on. So I'm certain when the disciples later on would come to pray with Jesus in the garden and would fall asleep, when Jesus is having this unbelievable spiritual battle, and Jesus would come back to them and say, couldn't you tarry with me one hour? That maybe this parable shows up in their mind that Satan comes and sows bad seeds when we're sleeping, when we're not in tune, when we're not on guard, when we're not acknowledging his presence and his opposition, when we're not aware, when we're not conscious and connecting to that reality. Everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared, and the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, you sowed good seed. Where's all, where all these weeds come from? He said, An enemy did this. And the servant said, Do you want us to go and pull them up? And he said, No. Because when you pull them up, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest comes. I was listening or reading a commentary by a man named Sinclair Ferguson who has an interesting point about this reality. He says that we have to be aware of the difference between what he's a British guy, so what he calls a laudable aspiration and a wise method. In other words, to dumb it down for us or to use words that we normally use, we have to know the difference between Uh, something that we want to do out of good motive and something that would be the best way to accomplish that. So here are the disciples who say, this field is full of weeds. We need to get rid of them. You know, just give us the word and we'll go in there and rip them all out. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. That's not the way we're going to do this. If you go in there and rip all these weeds out, you're going to uproot the good stuff. You're going to have collateral damage. There's going to be negative damage consequences from your laudable aspiration. Isn't it true sometimes that we often charge hard into things out of such good motive and then at the end of the day there's been as much collateral damage as there has been 
good accomplishments. And how much better it would have been if we had said to God, God, this isn't the way it should be. What would you have me to do? I'm reminded of the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. I was reading them with the boys this week. Uh, Of course, the whole story unfolds where David knows he's going to be king for years and years and years and years, tons of chapters through 1 and 2 Samuel, and he won't take it by force. He'll go up to Saul, and he could kill him with his sword, and he just cuts off the corner of his garment twice. Is, is so close to being able to do it. And when Saul and Jonathan finally die, he's overcome with sadness. And then after Saul's even dead, the, 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 the lineage of Saul is still fighting against David, and David won't, still won't take it by force. So much so that when Abner is killed, David has the people who killed him put to death because they're trying to take the kingdom by force. And then when Ishbosheth is killed, David does the same thing to those people. Because he won't take it by force. And then, as he's finally uh, installed as king and and comes and and takes Jerusalem, and the the Philistines are marching against him because there's this new army and sort of what seems to be a divided kingdom of Israel, they come and David says to God, God, what, what would you have me to do about this? And God tells him, go. Go fight them. And he pushes them back. And I wonder how often we sort of have the attitude of David. That we know what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be. That we know in the end that the cause of Christ is victorious. But that doesn't mean that we go hard charging into the middle of everything and make all of this collateral damage, but that we sit and wait and say, God, what would you have me do with this messed up situation in light of the reality that you're a victor. What would you have me do about the invading Philistines? What would you have me do about the lineage of Saul? What would you have me to do about the weeds that grow in the midst of wheat? And unfortunately, when we rush into these things, when we have these laudable aspirations that many times aren't the way that Christ would have us go about accomplishing the goal, Far too often the results are that our efforts in many ways mimic the efforts of the enemy who has sowed bad seeds. Think of the prolific examples. The church in Kansas that pickets all of these funerals in the name of Jesus. That writes these horrific signs and and posts these awful billboards in the name of Jesus. And what kind of seeds are they sowing in this, in their mind, laudable aspiration of proclaiming the gospel? The protesters who protest abortion clinics in violent ways. We've seen it in the past where abortion doctors have been killed by raging protesters. Now what is this? The vitriol the anger that is dripping from the language of people who oppose other people. All you have to do is spend five minutes on Facebook and someone's post is dripping in hate. And unfortunately, many of them are sitting in a pew somewhere this morning 
praising the name of Jesus. Perhaps it's a laudable aspiration to oppose something. And I'm not suggesting to you that all of these things are laudable aspirations. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality is they haven't sat at the feet of Jesus and asked, how would you have us deal with this mess? How would you have us deal with the invading Philistines? How would you have us handle the lineage of Saul? How would you have us deal with the weeds that are growing in the midst of the wheat? I'm going to guess that none of us are associated with the church in Kansas. I say it that way because I don't even want to say their name. In my mind, they've so opposed living of the gospel that it's not right to... I I even mention them in passing with shuddering. Probably have never been part of a violent protest. Perhaps you haven't written with vitriol on Facebook or a blog or spoken in anger to someone like that. But if everything was pulled back, you know the ways in which you have charged hard with your laudable aspirations and have not sought the wise method of Christ by sitting at his feet. The reality is that these weeds were probably what's known as darnel. Now, I know nothing about wheat and weeds, but from my understanding is that these weeds look just like wheat until the very last moments before harvest. And when we send people rushing in there to get rid of the wheat, the weeds, how much of the, what is going to be wheat is ripped up? And or how much of the roots of the good growing wheat are displaced by pulling the weeds that are next to it? And so in the fullness of wisdom and love, Jesus says, no, we'll wait to the harvest. And then that which is of this world will be burned. And that which is born of the Son will be harvested into the barn of the Father. This is the call of God to us and the reminder of how Jesus intends to do things in our world. Now, you might be asking the same question that I quickly ask when reading a passage like this. Well, God, or (laughs) that we ask all the time in the living of our lives, well, God, why? Like, why? Why all the weeds? And why let them grow? Like, why not spray some sort of, there's all kinds of things you can buy at Lowe's now that lets the grass grow and kills the weeds. You know, like, why not something like that from heaven coming down? (laughs) And what I'm constantly reminded is, one, the answers are not for us to know. God is mysteriously moving to advance his kingdom. But two, the great passage from Exodus that the prophets have always relied on and which is the reason which any of us can call Christ Lord, is that God is slow to anger, abounding in love and grace. He is eternally patient. New Testament writers say, not desiring that anyone would perish. Paul writes to Timothy, his desire is that everyone would be saved through Christ. So the weeds, they grow in the wheat field. They do. And the reality is that the similarity, as I've said before, is striking. 
and many times it's very difficult to know the difference. But I think there are three sort of realities that can play out for us as we think about this. The first, the weeds, the weeds grow in, in the world. The weeds grow in the world. And so as we look at the world, it's this wheat field sort of, in, and there's always been this imagery in the Old Testament of God as the vineyard planter, right? Or God as the gardener, and he's tending this garden, and so much so that when God institutes Adam and Eve, when he brings them into being, they're in a garden, right? This has always been this imagery of God. And yet in this garden where good things are growing, bad things are growing equally now as sin has been infused into this world. There are weeds in the world. Satan is sowing bad seed in our world. And that's why he's called the God of this world. But this should not be surprising to us. Because if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, we're reminded in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 15, that there's always going to be a battle between what is there called the seed of the woman and what God calls the seed of the serpent. So much so that the, the seed of the serpent will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but ultimately the seed of the woman will strike the head of the seed of the serpent. And the imagery is that there is a continual battle. Kingdoms in conflict. The advance of the kingdom of God through the seed of the woman, which is Christ. And the opposition of Satan and the seed of Satan, which is Antichrist, small a, plural. And it has been happening throughout history, constantly and continually, so much so that there is a ton of weeds in the world which once was the garden of God. This is our world. And so what do we do about it? Weeds grow in the church, not just in the world. Friends, just because we're in a church doesn't mean that everyone is on the same footing. It doesn't mean that everyone has saving faith. There are unbelievers and believers in the church. And just as the darnel and the wheat are so difficult to tell apart until the very last moments before harvest, so it can be for tons of people in the church. And far be it from me to ever assume upon anyone which you are. But there are weeds in the church. Satan is sowing bad seeds in the church. And you might say, well, wait a minute. How can that happen? Well, why is the church filled with divisiveness? When you read carefully the New Testament, the most singular, quote-unquote, sin that, that Jesus and Paul, writing on through the inspiration of the Spirit, would have the church deal with is not sexual sin. It's divisiveness. Because nothing hinders the growth of the kingdom of God more than divisiveness. Satan is sowing all kinds of seeds of divisiveness all through the church worldwide. And so we come back to the initial point. Are we aware 
that there is someone opposing the move of the kingdom. But not just divisiveness. There's sowing seeds of apathy. He's sowing seeds of fruitlessness. He's sowing seeds that cause us to quench the thirst for the Spirit in our life. He's sowing seeds that cause us to be disconnected from the mission that Christ would have us be on here and to the ends of the earth. So much so that most of the church in the Western world is stodgy, is stagnant, is not moving forward. And I'm not talking about how big or how small they are. That has no bearing on anything. I'm talking about how much they are connected to Jesus and his move of his kingdom in this world. Satan is sowing seeds in the church. And then, as we shrink it down once more, he's sowing seeds in your life. And mine too. I'm always reminded of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters where he so carefully reminds those who read that one of the great ways that Satan deceives us is to simply distract us. And if he can sort of distract us from the task at hand, that's all he has to do. He doesn't have to like get us into these, these, massive, these massive situations of like total ungodliness and unbelievable fallenness into sin, but he can simply distract us with our job, distract us with our pursuit of the American dream, or distract us with the, the worries or burdens of the day, the schedules and things like that. That's easiest way that Satan can sow seeds in your life. But I ask you this question because this is the only way, and I think this is why Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. One, to remind us that the Spirit is the one who conjures up fruit in us. It's not sort of that we work hard enough that all of a sudden we can, there's an apple of grace, you know, or there's an orange of peace. No, no, no. We're totally given to the Spirit who can infuse us, can grow the fruit on us, and reminder that the fruit then is not for us. I've never seen a tree eat its own apples. But I've picked them and eaten them, and they're pretty good. But one of the main reasons that Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit is so that you can be examining your life. Just like a harvest is coming in this parable, and the bad will be burned away, and the good will be harvested, what are you harvesting? I mean, if someone was to honestly and objectively look in your life, what's growing? It's all kinds of things growing, but some of them are weeds. Some of it is wheat. Some of it is inedible, and some of it is wonderful fruit. But take moments to examine and to ask the question, what are the seeds that Satan has been sowing that I've allowed to be fertilized and that I've watered and that I've allowed to grow? And as the harvest comes, there's many times when Jesus says to crowds or his disciples, what we've intended to do or our greatest intentions are things that are going to be tossed away at the end of this age. That only the, the purest of metals, the gold and the silver that survive the proverbial fire, as it were. So, if life were a giant wheat field, remember that it is full of weeds, is it not? Remember that as we experience this reality, first and foremost, that 
there's an enemy who opposes the move of the gospel at every step. Don't live in naivete towards it. Don't deny it. Be fully aware and engaged in the battle. But don't let your laudable aspirations take the place of wise methods of Christ. Sit at his feet. Be drenched in the story of the gospel. Be burdened by the reality of the world. And desperately say, as the prophets would say, here I am. Send me. I'm always reminded when I read that, that Isaiah didn't say, yeah, I'll go and here's my plan. Here's what I'm going to do, right? Just stamp it okay. You just say, here I am. The perfect response to the call of Christ. And then, as we live in the reality of wheat and weeds, that it's in this world, that there are kingdoms in conflict, that the spirit of the Antichrist, the seed of the serpent is actively opposing, and that the seed of Christ the seed of the woman that is Christ, is moving forward the kingdom of God. That it's the same way in the church that, that Jesus says in an alarming way in the book of Matthew as he recounts that the, those final days that many are going to come to me saying, I called you, Lord, Lord, I called on your name. And he'll say to them, I never knew you. Be gone from me. There's weeds and wheat in the church. And that we must be actively engaged and aware. And that, quite frankly, it is the singular task of the leadership of the church. Well, not the singular, but a giant task of the leadership of the church, as Paul would make fully aware to them, to protect the church from the seeds of the devil, of the enemy of divisiveness and fruitlessness and apathy and disconnection to mission and disconnection to Christ and quenching the Spirit and living life according to our own wants and needs. And there are weeds in your life. And all too often the weeds, they clutter the picture of the wheat to the world around. And the dead branches and the ones that don't bear fruit cover up the ones that are. So when those who are outside of Christ come to pick the heads of the wheat and be satisfied, or to take the fruit from the branch and be satisfied, what are they finding in your life? What are they finding at hope? What are they finding in the church of Christ? This is the alarming and gratifying call of the gospel. That somehow, those who have called on the name of Jesus are wheat growing in the midst of this mess. And somehow by grace, we can taste that reality. And it should drive you to your knees constantly thanking Christ for his work in your life, and yet calling us to so cultivate the soil that there are more wheat, more wheat than weeds. This is the task set before the people of God. 
from a story like this. Let's pray.